Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. It's the rare kind of person who loves comedy so much. He or she dedicates the better part of his or her life to tracking down and celebrating the lives and careers of other comedians. But Cliff Nesteroff already has done just that, turning his WFMU essays and classic showbiz blog into a wonderful new book, The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. He managed to find many comedians who were long forgotten by today's Hollywood and get them to open up about their days in vaudeville, radio and early television, the mob, and more. But what about Cliff Nestroff's early days as a stand-up comedian himself? I asked Cliff to tell me all about his own comedy life and story. So let's get to it. Well, Cliff Nestroff, welcome to Last Things First. Thank you very much, Sean. It's it's such an honor. So what's what's your excuse for being a comedy journalist? I know mine, but what's yours? Well, I don't. Uh, I never uh, have or would describe myself as a comedy journalist. I'm just a, a writer, you know. And uh, I've been writing about old comedians for the past uh, few years for no good reason. But mm-hmm. I never stopped writing about other things. But it's always nice to have a gimmick and to be known as the guy who does the thing. Right. So now I'm known as the old comedy uh, expert, which is you know as good of a gimmick as anybody. I'm that guy. So I don't really have an excuse uh, uh, for it, but uh, it came as an outgrowth out of researching uh, nonfiction articles that I was writing that just happened to do with comedy. Obviously, I had an interest in it because I did stand-up for eight years. Right. But uh, it was never my plan to be a guy who chronicled the history of comedy in any way. It just happened uh, organically and accidentally. And it also was the, the gimmick that was the most popular among other things that I was writing about. Certainly one of the things that got the most attention. And because people that are involved in comedy are themselves interested in comedy, a lot of the people in my audience, in my readership, were people of note. So that is a big motivator when people like uh, Steve Martin or Mel Brooks are giving you compliments, then it, you know, it's, a, it's a, a strong endorsement to continue doing what you're doing. So that, no. it was just accidental. But I would not consider myself a comedy a journalist, uh, maybe an essayist. Uh, but, you know, the thing I'm working on right now, quietly, has nothing to do with comedy. It's just a, a, a more of a literary uh, venture, you know? It's a novel, right, that you're it, working on now? Yeah, accidentally. I was just uh, journaling because uh, my computer crashed, so I started writing in my notebook, and it turned into uh, a novel, which I accidentally sold to a TV producer uh, a couple weeks ago when we were meeting to talk about my book of comedy history. He asked me what was going on with my life, and I said, well, uh, this thing happened to me in Death Valley recently. And he said, what's that? And I said, the story is too long. He goes, no, tell it to me. And I did, and at the end of it, he goes, "Uh, well, do you want a television series? Because that's a series. That's Mm -hmm. not a pilot. That's not a film. And this guy is the executive producer of American Horror Story. And he goes, uh, we have the whole infrastructure in place. When you're ready, you just let me know. So uh, so not everything I work on is uh, completely focused on comedy, per se. So I reject your assertion. 
that I'm a comedy journalist. How dare you? I I I told your your book publicist that that you are the throwback Thursday version of me. So that's even you probably would reject that even more. So. I would. I would. Well, you know, you're you're not alone though. Like other uh, people, uh, Julie Seabow. Uh, Ju- Julie Seabow. Yeah. From uh, uh, the LA Weekly, I was at something, and uh, she was standing next to me, and I know her, and the, I don't remember who we were talking to, some comic, and she introduced me to this this uh, guy, and she said he's he's just like me, he's the male version of me, and I was like, how dare you? <laughs> don't 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 arbitrarily decide that I'm you, for goodness sake, I'm a human being. Well, I think I, I've known Julie for years, and I think. Because there really aren't many more people other than Julie and myself who really? document I, I feel like document comedy in, full time. I feel like there's one in every city now. There's a, a I, they all follow me on Twitter. There's right. one in Chicago. There's one in Toronto. We should set up a, a support group. You guys should. <laughs> I'm not attending this support group. I don't need it. All right, but Would, uh, uh, you guys maybe do need the support group. Maybe you can pull your money and, and and pay your rent. Do you feel okay if you don't feel a kinship toward Julie and myself? Do you feel a kinship with Mike Kaplan and other people who spell their name oh, differently? Uh, differently, and why phonetically? Uh, no, but somebody tweeted out a funny thing the other day because I did uh, Tom Sharpling's uh, show, and Tom the, Sharpling is all about show. indie music. You know, he's mm-hmm. obsessed with all. He knows all the indie bands. And somebody said, uh, how many people named K-L-I-P-H does Sharpling know? Because there's two. There's me and this guy who was in the Flaming Lips. Okay. He spells his name that way, uh, uh, which I did not know uh, when I started spelling my name that way when I was a boy, when I was a teenager. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, but I thought that was funny because those are the two, and Tom Sharpling knows right. them both. <laughs> so when, when you decided to start going by K-L-I-P-H, Cliff, yeah. what was your vision of what grown-up Cliff was going to be like. I didn't have a vision, but I started spelling my name that way because of this girl who told me to. She, she was sort of this artsy girl mm-hmm. who I had a crush on when I was 16, and she said, Cliff, you should spell your name K-L-I-P-H. <laughs> and I said, oh, all right, well, uh, uh, that'll make you uh, like me, and I'll lose my virginity. I'll do that. That's what I thought. It's not what right. I said. And uh, uh, so I did, and it didn't work. I did not mm. uh, lose my virginity, so I decided to uh, keep spelling that way until I do lose <laughs> my virginity. So I'm still K-L-I-P-H today at the age of 35. Wow. That's but a, it, that's, it is a preposterous uh, thing and a stupid thing. Most people are too afraid to say, hey, you spell your name in a stupid way. Some people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog last night insulted the way I spell my name at my uh, Brooklyn, uh, New York City book launch, which mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, it's just, a, it's just a gimmick, you know. It kind of people remember it. It stands out a little bit, although it also backfires. People say, how do you pronounce your name? Is it Khalif? Like they think I'm from the Middle East or something, you know. And I'm like, no, it's, it's Cliff. And they're like, oh, your parents must be assholes. And I go, yes, they are, but that's <laughs> not why, because they didn't spell it that way on the birth certificate. No, that was your doing. Yeah. But when you were a teenager, you, were you dreaming that one day... I would, would spell my name K O I P H. No, that yes. someday, that someday you would be on stage being insulted by Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, or uh, yeah, the comedy actually, would be yeah. Part of because your life? when I did stand up, uh, I was eighteen. I think most people that start stand up, it's usually around that age, around eighteen. And uh, yeah, I always had ambitions of that. And when I was younger, uh, when I was growing up in the middle of nowhere in Canada, there was no uh, outlet 
for show business. You could do a school play and that was it. So I probably would have started earlier if had there been the avenue to do so because I had a knack uh, for being funny and certainly a knack for being uh, loud and obnoxious. So I could draw attention to myself if I wanted to. And uh, so I always knew I had that uh, uh, skill. So I, I haven't been doing stand-up for years, but even now when I get up on stage last night with Triumph or um, last year with Mel Brooks, uh, those would be intimidating circumstances for even a lot of experienced stand-ups. And they are, you know, they fills you with nerves. But once I'm on stage there, I certainly feel like I belong there. What was the, what was the first memory you have of being funny? I have no idea, but I know that in uh, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, I, I could manipulate a group of people to laugh. I know that much. So I don't have a first memory, and nor was uh, like any kind of a class clown. But mm. when it was necessary, I could make people laugh. And I remember my third grade report card mm -hmm. from Mr. Wack. Mr. Wack. Uh, W-A-C-K. No Mr. H. Yeah, no H. Mr. Wack. He wrote on the report card, uh, uh, Cliff's written work has improved immeasurably and I will cherish his unique sense of humor forever in the third grade. So I, I already had that. I could write and, uh, and I could make people laugh. You don't remember any signature bits from third grade? No. <laughs> no, none at all. None at all. But when I grew up, uh, when I turned 18 and moved to Toronto, I enrolled in a sitcom uh, uh, writing uh, course. Through, like through Second months? City or somewhere else? No, through Humber College. Okay. And uh, it was this guy who used to be a uh, Sid and Marty Croft uh, writer. What was his name? Lauren Froman. Okay. He had written for uh, Lidsville and HR Puffin Stuff. Oh, yeah. And uh, he always used to name drop Richard Pryor and say, when I was writing for Pryor, when I was writing for Pryor, and it, he, made it, he made it sound like he was Paul Mooney, but then this was pre-Google. Finally, after the course was long over, I was in a video store in the children's section, and there was a VHS tape of a show called Pryor's Place, short-lived Saturday morning series starring Richard Pryor and a bunch of puppets wow. produced by Sid and Marty Croft. And I went, oh, that's what he was talking about <laughs> when I was writing for Pryor, when I was writing for Pryor. He, here he was talking like he had sculpted his stand-up career or something. Right. But anyways, he was still a very good teacher. But I learned from that course that I had a knack for uh, story structure, which I had not known previously. I thought, because I was younger than everybody in the course that, and not a city boy, that I'd be much more uh, incompetent. But I, ha I had a knack for story structure. And that came, I think, out of reading uh, Archie Digests throughout my youth because they would tell a story in eight pages mm -hmm. that was driven by jokes and there would be like a, 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 an obstacle at the start and then somebody trying to uh, get over that obstacle and achieve their objective, which is the uh, ABCD rule of, of uh, story structure. So when I started taking this sitcom course, I started cranking out these spec scripts and uh, people in the class thought I had plagiarized them from TV because they hit all the notes perfectly. I wrote a third rock from the sun that was very sitcom-y. And if you remember that sitcom, John Lithgow and his family are aliens from outer space, undercover, living a civilian American life. But they're kind of ignorant of a lot of uh, 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 social norms in America Correct. that could blow their cover and it makes them very eccentric. So I had this idea and I wrote this spec script in which John Lithgow, in the teaser, goes out to the mailbox and removes a letter that was a uh, publisher's clearinghouse Ed McMahon letter that says, 
you are a millionaire. You want a million dollars. And he goes, I'm rich, I'm rich. And he skips into the house. And then that's the teaser. And we go to the opening credits, the theme song, all that. And then uh, the first act is him telling the family that they're millionaires. And each of them goes to their respective jobs and tells their boss to go fuck themselves. They don't need them. John Lithgow quits his job as a teacher. And, uh, of course, uh, and then in the middle, I had this montage where it's John Lithgow on a uh, shopping spree, like in right, a Walmart. Spending with, their money. With a shopping cart. And you hear Holiday for Strings in the background. It was this montage. And I had written this scene where he goes past a uh, pyramid display of VHS tapes of uh, Dorf Goes Golfing. Do you remember Dorf? It was oh, yeah. a Tim Conway. Tim Conway. So... John Lithgow goes by with this shopping cart and he dumps like a hundred of these VHS tapes, stacks it in his uh, shopping mm-hmm. cart and leaves the shot and then comes backwards back into the shot and picks up the cardboard cutout of Tim Conway and puts it in the cart and then goes on. And uh, then the act break is they discover, oh no, they're not millionaires. Now they've maxed out their credit cards. They've told everybody to go fuck themselves and it's them trying to repair their now destroyed lives. And so... French Stewart decides he'll become an actor because actors make a lot of money. So the next scene is him wearing an ascot, smoking a pipe, showing up for a Snickers bar uh, <laughs> uh, audition. You know. Anyways, it was it was very sitcommy, sitcommy, but it was a premise that was kind of perfect for that show. And uh, people were asking me in class, they're like, "You stole this from this? This has to have already been an episode of this or some other show, but it never was." You know. So I just had this knack for for story structure that I was uh, uh, birthed with. Um, but I, that all comes from childhood uh, and absorbing things, absorbing show business, absorbing Archie Digests. And uh, uh, the fact that this teacher had complimented my written work, it was because I became a very early reader because I was obsessed with these Archie Digests. I'd read them all the time. So my, my, my language skills were very good. And it turned out eventually my literary skills were very good. And people would dismiss these things probably as like illiterate bullshit. But... Uh, it really helped me and actually taught me how to uh, kind of uh, uh, drive, thring, drive things uh, via jokes. These Archie comics were right. full of jokes. Who did you identify most with in the Archie Digest? I liked Jughead uh, the, the most. Relief. Yeah, because yeah. he was the cynical one. You know, he wasn't a, a jock like Big Moose. He wasn't an asshole like Reggie. He wasn't a, a, a rapist like Archie. But he was, uh, you know, I didn't identify with his misogyny, Jughead, but I, I, I could I identify with the kind of the slacker, laid-back uh, cynicism of Jughead Jones. Okay. Yeah. When, when did you move from writing to stand-up? Uh, well, stand-up, they kind of happened at the same time. You know, uh, you I was writing. Well, no, I was writing when I was 16, uh, uh, in notebooks, poetry, beat stuff. I was obsessed with the beats. And then 18, I enrolled in that class. Uh, and there was a guy in that class who was a stand-up comic. And it's really interesting because stand-up comedians are not very good at writing things other than stand-up usually. They're usually not very good script writers. And most good script, script writers are terrible stand-ups. It's very rare that the two coincide. So this stand-up comedian was in my course, and he was not good at writing scripts, but he was very good at stand-up. And he encouraged me to try it, and I had an aversion. I said, no, nah, I don't want to... <clears throat> he said, why don't you come down to the comedy club and watch the show tonight? And I had never been in a comedy club, and I still had the uh, prejudice sure. of the 1980s in my, in my fabric, which a lot of people up till very recently still did. People who don't like stand-up, they picture the 1980s. They picture big hair and shoulder pads and skinny ties and Jack Nicholson impressions. And I, so I sort of had that. 
prejudice. And I said, no, I don't want to really uh, uh, see it. He goes, you're funny. You should try stand-up. And I said, nah, I don't know. He said, I'll put you on the guest list. You come down if you want. So I went down. It was at the Yuck Yucks in Toronto on Eglinton Avenue, which is no longer there. Uh, the comedy club is no longer there. Eglinton Avenue is still there. <laughs> uh, and it was exactly what I feared. Everybody that went up was doing a Jack Nicholson impression. And there, it, it was the 1980s, except in 1998, you know. And I was kind of appalled, and it was terrible. But then the fifth guy up was this guy who was in my class. And he went up and he destroyed. He brought down the house. He just grabbed the mic and took control. And after 10 minutes, 10 minutes had annihilated the whole room and nobody could follow him. And I was like, holy shit, what was that? It was like a whirlwind, like a right. tornado. And I, I just, I, it was such a impressive magic trick to me. I just couldn't grasp how he had done that. And who was this guy? His name was Jason Rouse. Okay. Oh, I know Jason. Yeah, yeah. His name is Jason Rouse. <laughs> I keep speaking in the past tense as if Eglinton Avenue has been wiped off the face of the earth and Jason Rouse is dead. They're still around. Um, so he encouraged me. And so he started getting me spots because mm -hmm. at the time he was hot in Toronto and he had the power to get me a spot in any of the comedy clubs. And so he did. And so we first went out to the suburb suburbs and I had four jokes. First joke got a laugh. Second joke got half a laugh. Third joke got nothing. Fourth joke got nothing. And I left the stage after one minute. And left a bare stage there. The MC was in the bathroom, you know. Not expecting you to be yeah, off stage in a minute. Yeah, and uh, a hot one. Yeah, but that first, yeah, uh, no, not even a hot <laughs> twenty-five seconds. The the last thirty-five seconds were dreadful. Uh, but I uh, I did a, I did well enough with that first joke that I was like, okay, I kind of yeah, I could do this. Mm -hmm. And so I did it for eight years and got good around year three. The first two years, I had no very little evolution. I, it was stagnant. I didn't work on it very hard. And I was not one of these amateur comics who goes up on stage and has no consciousness of time and just goes on and on and on and on for 15 minutes while they're giving them the light. I could not get off stage fast enough because I had written my jokes. I wasn't there to banter. So I, I, for like two years, I only had four minutes, you know. Uh, but then I moved to Vancouver, and there the comedy scene was really interesting because everybody was infinitely more creative. What year was that? Yeah, 2001. Ah, that's why we never met. I was in Seattle from 95 to 2001. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I would do uh, the comedy underground from time to time. Uh, that, the one in Seattle and right. the one in Tacoma. I, I was an MC there. Yeah, I, I, I did the one in Tacoma. I don't remember the names of any of the Seattle comics, but I knew them. Uh, there was only one uh, black comic in Seattle, a really funny guy who ended up writing for HBO. I wish I could remember his name. Well, it was Rod Long, who's very funny, did a lot of sports-themed material. What's his name? Rod Long. Is that, is that him? Maybe that is him. It was Daryl Lennox, but he was kind of Vancouver and no, Seattle. No, 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 no. I know Daryl. No, 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 no. I performed with Daryl one time. Did you perform in Bellingham at the Elephant and Castle? Never. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I did, the, I did the road with Daryl. We still know each other. Um, Brad Brake? This sounds very familiar, yeah. I don't know who that is. <laughs> who's, the, who's the guy? Who's the, the, the weird, pervy mountain man <laughs> that lived at the fucking club there forever? I don't know if he's pervy, but uh, when you say mountain man, I think of James Hennigan. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> that's him. Same act for 100 years. I think he lives in the basement of the comedy club there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's an awesome. Right. What a strange guy. What a strange So you guy. moved to Vancouver and everybody was creative. Is that when you decided to create a character for yourself? Sorry, say that again? 
when you moved to Vancouver and saw that everybody was more creative, is that when you created a character for your I own act? I created a character. I did two acts. I, I had created the character by accident, and I never thought of it as stand-up. I thought of it as more performance art. Mm-hmm. Uh, not intentionally, but it just seemed so unconventional that I didn't think it was stand-up. But as it turns out, it got more laughs than my regular uh, stand-up act. Uh, I had created this character in Toronto before I had moved, uh, but it clicked in Vancouver in 2002. It just exploded. And for three years in Vancouver, 2002 through 2005, I became a dominant force there and got all my great uh, uh, stand-up press at that time and really was hot. But Vancouver is small, so it doesn't really mean much uh, 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 if you're hot there. It's like being a weatherman in a town. Yeah, you're really famous in that city, right? You're but it's ultimately celebrity. irrelevant because <laughs> you know you're just a weatherman in 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 Des Moines. Everybody in Des Moines knows you, but are the local uh, meteorologists in Canada also aspiring stand-up comedians, or is that more of an American no, tendency? No, that, that's frequently it. Yeah, I, I mean none that I knew of when I was there, but uh, yeah, I, I could see uh, a sticky weatherman through the years there. Mm. Yeah. One of them uh, appeared on Dallas, the original Larry Hagman. Nice. And he was, so he, now he's a made man in Vancouver because he'd been on one episode of <laughs> Dallas. Holy shit, this guy. <laughs> Let's do his caricature and put it on the wall at Sardi's. Uh, but yeah, I created... Good Lord, yeah. we're doing this right next to a, a restaurant. We should let our listeners know. Um, I created the character in Toronto. I was doing a dive bar called the Gladstone. It was the loudest rough-and-tumble dive bar they had an open mic not for comedy just for music Mm -hmm. and since i was new i would do all the open mics even if it wasn't for comedy and it was death knell for any stand-up to do this room you just couldn't get anybody's attention that guy who got me my spot said why are you even going there because it's it's pointless you know and it was but it was still stage time you got up on stage you got comfortable with a microphone and so i would go up there and bomb 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 this one week i was bombing as usual it's because it was so loud everybody was just talking a packed bar of old men drunk fighting and drowning you out but since it was a music open mic behind uh, uh, the microphones was a drum set sitting there so I picked up a drumstick that was on the ground once and I told my regular joke which nobody heard and I walloped the cymbal and it went smash and it was so loud that everybody went silent and looked at the stage and I told my next joke and it got a huge laugh the first laugh in the history of the Gladstone. And so I hit the symbol again, mm-hmm. like a rim shot. And then I told my next joke, again, another big laugh. And I, and I left the stage to a big ovation for the first time in the history of this rough and tumble uh, uh, gig. So the next Thursday night, they did the open mic every week. I came back and I decided to have like a reason to hit that symbol. Okay. So I put on a necktie and I was gonna be like the old comedian that gets a rim shot. It wasn't even a rim shot, I just hit the symbol smash. There was no ba-dump. Just the ching, you know? And, uh, and it went great. And so I kept doing that. And slowly but surely it evolved into an actual character, this old bitter comedian named Shecky Gray, who had been everywhere, seen everything, and I would start with this preamble. Uh, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Shecky Gray. I am an internationally renowned and professional, professional comedian. I've been everywhere. I've done everything. The funny aprons on the show Walk With Yan. That was me, you know, and I'd rattle off these preposterous right. credits. Uh, there was a comedian, a terrible comedian in Canada who was a veteran comedian, but just bad, who I won't name, but he had been uh, 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 the second runner-up 
on he an knows ep- who he is. He was a second runner-up on an episode of America's Funniest People, okay. hosted by Dave Coulier. But he would brag about that. So in my <laughs> act, uh, when I was introducing myself, I say, I was second runner-up on America's Funniest People with Dave Coulier. And that would get a laugh normally, but it got a bigger laugh from the comics because they knew it was right. a reference to this guy. You know? um, and then I would tell my bad jokes. Mm-hmm. I wrote some bad jokes. Uh, I recently threw a party for all my impotent friends. But nobody came. Oh, and I'd hit the symbol, you know. And then I would say, now we're cooking with gasoline. And then I'd tell another bad joke. I was walking down the street, saw a lady. Said, hey, miss, your pants are falling down. She looked, said, no, they're not. I said, sorry, I've made up my mind. Smash, you know. Now we're working. And then I would tell another bad joke. Right. But after each joke, I would, I would say, now we're doing something. So it started off with, now we're cooking with gasoline. Now we're working. Now we're poking holes in the Pope's condoms. Now we're wishing Keanu was the Reeves in a wheelchair. Now we're ba ba ba. I would do that after every joke, and then I yeah. would drop the jokes and just do that. Now we're ba 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 ba. Smash. Now we're ba 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 ba. Smash. Now we're ba ba ba. Now we're ba ba ba. Now. And I would do like 20 or 30 of those lines in a row, and then stop and pant, and then the audience would applaud. <laughs> and then, because it was such an obnoxious act. Yeah, I'm imagining you ch- opening for Tony Clifton and Tony yeah. Clifton being so upset that he doesn't go on stage. Yeah, it after was that. Tony Clifton esque. It was not inspired by that, but it was not no. unlike it. And then, uh, it was such an obnoxious act, and I find that this is common with Tony Clifton, Sam Kinison, Dice. If you're obnoxious on stage, it attracts an obnoxious audience. Mm, yes. So I would be really obnoxious, and when I would take a break to breathe, inevitably somebody would scream something and then I would scream back and then that became part of the act I became like this insult comic I'd be insulting the audience they'd be insulting me and I used to do this weekly show or no monthly show in Vancouver at a punk bar and I couldn't do my act there once I became established there I would show up uh, the MC would say you know who's coming next and the audience would get all start cheering and people would line up at the foot of the stage and in a row would take turns insulting me Heckling. They would line up to heckle. So one guy would, and it was not planned. It just happened instantaneously over the course of time. One guy would heckle, and then I would insult them. Ba, 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 ba. Everybody laughed. Next person, heckle. Ba, ba, ba. At this one room, we did that. And so it became a bit of a phenomenon in Vancouver, Shecky Gray. And, you know, I landed on the front uh, cover of all the free weeklies in that city, and I had a following in the bad part of town, in the rich part of town, in the gay part of town. I targeted every demographic because I wasn't just doing comedy clubs. I did those too. But I was doing all these uh, uh, open mics and music rooms and poetry rooms and opening for bands and also doing comedy clubs. So because of that, my reach was uh, vaster Mm -hmm. than other comedians who were just doing comedy clubs. But uh, the character all came out accidentally from that one open mic in, in Toronto, which was a rough and tumble bar, and I hit that symbol that one time. But so what happened to Shecky Gray? Did he not go to Just for Laughs and get a, de- a development deal? And uh, well, I did. I did all those uh, same showcases. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it was controversial whenever I showcased for Just for Laughs because I always got to showcase twice because I had two oh, acts. Right. <laughs> so I would do the Shecky Gray act one night, and mm-hmm. then the next night on a different uh, a lineup of comedians, I did my own act with my own voice, my own name. So. I got to showcase twice all the time, and all the other comedians only got to do it oh, once, wow. and so that was like a, 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 a point of resentment for a lot of people. But uh, uh, J.P. Buck, who now books the comedians on Conan O'Brien, was uh, booking comedians for the U.S. 
uh, uh, Aspen Comedy Arts Festival right. at that time. And he came to town, and I showcased for him twice. And he loved the act, and he brought the tapes back to, uh, to Los Angeles. And uh, I guess there was five people in the room that decide mm. who, which comedians go to Aspen and which ones don't. And he said that my act was the most polarizing <laughs> he'd ever uh, uh, had in the room. Uh, that two people thought it was the funniest shit they'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. Two people thought it was the worst shit they'd ever seen. And one guy was on the fence. Oh, but they deferred. But they def- probably him. But they, <laughs> but they deferred to uh, to to the caution and decided not to book me. That's not comedy. Uh, comedy is not deferring to caution. Yeah, yeah. So so that didn't happen. But that, that that's okay. I, I killed off the act on my own because okay. I created a monster. It became so popular that I was not. Uh, given the allowance to perform on stage as myself in my own voice, people did not want to see that. So in the times that I would attempt to, people would shout out the name of my character, Shecky! Right. Shecky! You know, because I had this obnoxious audience now. And uh, I would try and do my own material, and they'd be like, boo! You know, like they didn't want to see it. They wanted the other character. And so I was getting sick of it, because it was gimmicky, you know, and I didn't want to be the gimmicky guy, even though it was popular. So I killed it off. I had a roast... Uh, I was my, for my final show, and I invited local celebrities like Nardwar, the Human Serviette, who's a, a notorious YouTube star now. He interviews hip hop guys, and a big star in Canada. And, and other people were on this day. As Graham Clark, great comedian from Canada, emceed the show. And uh, that same week, Zach Galifianakis had moved back to Los Angeles. He was part of our stand-up scene in Vancouver for uh, several years, and he met his wife, who he's with now and has a child with, uh, at one of our shows there. Um, he had just left town and I had booked him on a show a month earlier and Zach had this suitcase that somebody on set had given him as a present of breakaway bottles made out of candy glass. They look like real beer bottles, but mm-hmm. if you just touch them, they shatter and they use right. them in old Western movies, you know? So he had this case of them and I booked him on this show at the, at the, at the punk bar and he had one of these fake breakaway bottles on the stool and he's up on stage and he told a joke that didn't get a laugh. And he grabs the bottle and he goes, fuck! And he takes the bottle and he smashes it over his own uh, forehead, which mm-hmm. got a huge laugh, you know. <clears throat> and so for my roast, uh, uh, I, I got one of those breakaway bottles from him. And I had a planted heckler in the audience with this breakaway bottle, this guy Ryan, who was a local comic. And I said, be very careful. You got to don't shatter it. It's really fragile. But at the end of the show, I want you to heckle me. I'm going to get in a fight with you, and then I want you to rush the stage and hit me in the face with this bottle, and I'll kill my character. So we did this roast. It was packed. It was like a social event uh, uh, of comedy in, in Vancouver. Every comedian I'd ever worked with, every fan I'd ever had up there was there. It was far exceeded the uh, uh, fire marshal's rules. There's hundreds of people at this show. It was great. So I go up at the end. I do my last ever uh, uh, shtick as this character. And, uh, and at the end, uh, uh, Ryan starts heckling me, and I start heckling him back, and he rushes the stage, and I told him, you could just tap me and it'll shatter. He belts me in the face. It knocks me to the ground. <laughs> and I would purchased this fake blood from a film studio in North Vancouver where they had like 50 types of stage blood. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just put a little dot of it on your forehead, and it slowly starts to drip. It looked very realistic. And I was realized I was... Uh, um, uh, Worried that this stunt would look too stagey with the bottle and the fake blood. But Ryan belts me, he knocks me over, I fall behind the dais, and I apply the blood, and I come up, 
and nobody is laughing. It's dead silence. There's like 500 people there. It's quiet. It looked too real. Right. I found out later that the owner of the club phoned the police on my friend Ryan, who had planted in the audience, <laughs> oh, yeah. and the bouncers were beating him up outside. Oh, my goodness. Um, but then uh, Graham had this line I cued for him where he was he's supposed to say, is there a doctor in the house? Mm-hmm. Is there a doctor in the house? And we had this other comedian at the back, Aubrey Tennant, in a doctor's like white smock for okay, the whole show. So that would... And that was his cue. He was supposed to come up and pronounce me right. dead. But we could, Graham and I could both see that he was at the back of the room in his doctor's smock, with his hand on the wall, hitting on a girl. And they were, he wasn't even paying attention. And he's like, yeah, baby. And Graham Clark goes, Aubrey Tennant, that's your cue. Is there a doctor in the house? And then he goes, oh, shit, I am a doctor. And he runs up to the stage, and he takes my pulse, and he goes, Shecky Gray is dead. And the audience then knew, oh. Okay. And these two guys from Vancouver Corner Service came up with a gurney, and they strapped me in, and they raised me above their heads, and they... Uh, 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 carried me out of the room and everybody in the crowd was chanting Shaky, Shaky, Shaky and they took me out to a hearse that we had parked out front from the start of the show with posters in the window and that was the last time that I did that act and uh, yeah that was the end of my stand-up career Had you already started writing about comedy at that point? Or were you just writing about music? Uh, I wasn't really writing about music I think I was still doing poetry at that time. I don't think I was writing about comedians yet. I started writing about comedians on the internet. That show was in April 2005, and I started doing stuff for WFMU very shortly after that, around 2006. How did you convince WFMU to publish long-form essays about I didn't have to convince them. I had full creative freedom there to do whatever I wanted. And... uh, uh, should we wait a second? It's okay. Uh, do you edit this or not? No. Oh, shit. Now, that <laughs> makes no sense. There's well, we'll people cackling now. in the background. We'll That's, edit it now. Oh, okay. um, so I had full creative freedom at WFMU, so I didn't have to convince them to do uh, uh, long-form essay articles. They, they gave me uh, uh, carte blanche to do whatever I wanted, and I did. And one of the first articles I wrote for them was about comedy. It was about this obscure guy from the 60s named Murray Roman, and I was a record collector, and WFMU frequently uploaded rare and unusual vinyl and wrote about it, and they're responsible for resurrecting kind of obscure guys from the past, like Raymond Scott and uh, the cover art of Jim Flora and this kind of cult item that Rolling Stone called an album of the year about 10 years ago called the Langley Schools Arts Project. It got reissued. It was a high school, or no, an elementary school LP, mm-hmm. a music teacher who was hip, taught his music students how to like cover songs from Pet Sounds and David Bowie and it was a very obscure record that was pressed just for the parents, a hundred people, but uh, uh, when it came out you know, it disappeared immediately, it wasn't meant for commercial release, but somebody at WFMU found it, posted it online, it got reissued as a CD and got all kinds of press on NPR and Rolling Stone. So WFMU had this reputation for resurrecting obscure music and LPs so I found this record by this guy Murray Roman, it was a psychedelic comedy record with a kaleidoscope cover and and this guy's head there was five versions of his head on the cover he's wearing tinted glasses what were you looking for at the time what do you mean when you found the record what were you were you looking for I something in, in a, particular no just, i was in a thri- i was in just a flea diving. market i was in a flea market just buying music i guess and Murray Roman's material was all very 60s about police brutality and smoking banana peels and it had liner notes by Tommy Smothers and when I uh, met the Smothers Brothers when they came through town, I was still doing stand-up, 
I asked Tommy Smothers, who is this guy, Murray Roman? You did the liner notes for it. It's such a weird record. He goes, oh, he was a writer on the Smothers Brothers show, but he died really young in a car accident, uh, same time that he was the opening act for The Who. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's very interesting. A couple months later, I thought, well, maybe that's something to write about, and then I could upload the audio of the LP. Mm-hmm. And so I phoned Tommy Smothers, reminded him who I was. He, he consented to an interview about Murray Roman. And halfway through the interview, he said, you know who would know more about Murray than me, who would be good to talk to, is Steve. Have you talked to Steve yet? And I said, uh, Steve? He goes, Steve Martin. <laughs> he was Murray Roman's writing partner on the Smothers Brothers. I go, oh, no, well, I haven't talked to Steve Martin <laughs> yet. I'm sure I have his number around here, but I must have uh, misplaced it. That's a, he goes, that's a coy play. He goes, listen, I'll phone him. I'll tell him to call you. Mm-hmm. An hour later, my phone rings in my shitty apartment in Vancouver, and it's Steve Martin. He goes, Tommy told me to call you. You're doing a thing on Murray. I said, yeah. So we inter- I did an interview with him, talked. I was very uh, unprepared because I did not anticipate that this would happen. Right. Uh, but we spoke- no one expects Steve Martin to call them at home. No. So 40 minutes uh, we spoke. And then at the end of it, he said, who else are you writing about? Because I'm a fan of a lot of these old comics like Jackie Vernon. Mm-hmm. Jackie Vernon's a very obscure comedian from the 60s, but I was familiar with him. And we nerded out about Jackie Vernon over the phone, Steve Martin and I. And so we got off the phone. I uh, also interviewed Bob Einstein and Mason Williams, two other guys who wrote for the Smothers Brothers with Murray Roman in the late 60s. And I put together this article for WFMU. And WFMU already had a built-in audience. So it didn't matter. As long as I was attached to their name, I would have an audience and commenters below Mm. the articles. So it gained a lot of traction. But that article and that kind of happenstance was, I guess, a good sign. So I continued to c- kind of uh, uh, focus in on obscure comedians or comedy records for the initial period. So I wrote about this guy, Dick Davey, completely forgotten white comedian, the first white comedian to headline the Apollo Theater in Harlem. He did it in 1965 during the era of civil rights and black power. So it was a brave thing and a weird thing. He was a progressive comedian. I wrote about him. So that kind of led me into writing about old comedians accidentally. Well, I mean, it's got to be no accident to have Steve Martin call you and tell you, I'm interested, not only am I interested in what you're doing, can you do more? Yeah, I mean, it was... uh, (laughs) I'm endorsing what you're doing. Please do follow-ups on all of this. Yeah, I I mean, it, it, it it was a good sign. Is what it was, you know. Did you keep his phone number? Uh, I did not have call display. It was like still the days of landlines, believe it or not. I've but had a couple of episodes like that where people have called me and I, I, f- I failed to retain their phone number. Afterward. Oh, I didn't have to. I had his email and we were pen pals okay. for a little while. And then he lost my email. But uh, I'm still in contact with him. Yeah, he, he wrote me a really nice letter uh a month ago about mm-hmm. my book said i love it and uh where can i this is before it came out he said where can i get copies because i'd like to give a gift to paul schaefer i want to give a gift to martin short I'll, i know they'll love it congratulations right. it's an important document and uh yeah so we've been talking again uh the past uh, uh month or two um but yeah he's a very nice guy and just last night, you got to do a book launch party with Robert Smigel and yeah. Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. Yeah, it was what a great honor. Uh, uh, we started off this show where I, whenever I do a show like this, I did one with Fred Willard, I did one with Mel Brooks, I 
come on stage by myself and I can contextualize their career and talk a lot about some interesting things that people don't know about their careers. So Fred Willard, when I did that show, I talked about his early 60s coffee house comedy team that mm -hmm. he was in and his experiences on Ed Sullivan, which people don't realize Fred Willard goes back that far. Uh, so I was talking about that. So last night with Robert Smigel, same thing. I was saying in 1988, he did a live sketch show in Chicago with Conan O'Brien and Bob Odenkirk. That's where they invented Bill Swirsky's Superfans. That's where they invented in the year 2000, this regular bit on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. And so while I'm doing this opening spiel, uh, through the red curtain off the side, uh, Triumph's head pokes <laughs> through and he goes, get on with it. <laughs> this is so boring. You're boring the people. <laughs> you know, Cliff Nesteroff, you spell your name K-L-I-P-H, and that's just one of the only thing that's interesting about you. <laughs> and uh, so Triumph, the insult comic dog, did this spiel of jokes about me, which was, you know, what a, what a wonderful uh, banner moment and feather in my cap that Smigel yesterday afternoon with two other comedy writers uh, Michael Komen and David Feldman, they all sat down and, and hashed out three pages worth of jokes about me. Uh, how, uh, how much better were their, their insults than the ones that Shecky Gray used to get? Uh, insult comedy is a, fi <laughs> a, fine, a fine art form, I gotta say. But uh, I would say theirs were vastly superior, and they were great. They were great. I'll, I'm gonna tweet out some of those jokes uh, in the next couple of weeks when I get my uh, print out of them. But yeah. It was a great honor to do that show with Robert Smigel. He's a really uh, uh, influential guy, mm -hmm. and people don't realize who he hired and gave the first professional jobs to uh, in the 80s and early 90s before anybody else had heard of them, before anybody else had used them in television. Robert Smigel hired Bob Odenkirk, Louis C.K., Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, and Charlie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind Kaufman, before anybody else had ever uh, uh, thought of using them. Right. Uh, so for that reason alone, other than just being a great comedy writer, for that reason alone, uh, Robert Smigel is uh, incredibly influential. And one of the themes of my book, uh, The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, available now from Grove Press, <laughs> is influence that's one of the main mm -hmm. themes so that's one of the reasons i had robert smigel there for the book launch was because i felt that he is influential he's also somebody who's not old old he's tangible and relevant to contemporary comedy fans and yet robert smigel is very influenced by the history of comedy triumph the insult comic dog is a salute to those old nightclub comedians and those old cat skill guys that's why Triumph has a cigar in his mouth and a and a Eastern European accent. He's you know like a Jewish comedian from right. the Borscht Belt who happens to be a uh, canine. What's the uh, I ask all my guests this? What's the what's the last best advice you've received over the last year or so? Advice. Yeah. Advice. Uh, I know without you realizing it, somebody yeah. gave me good advice. Gary Owens who is a sonorous voice, recently died. He was the narrator on Laughing. He was the original voice of Space Ghost. Uh, he was the original voice of Roger Ramjet. A lot of cartoon voices, a lot of narration. And a funny guy, Gary Owens. I interviewed him uh, maybe in 2007, maybe. And he said to me, not meaning to give advice. I was living in Vancouver at the time. He goes, if you want... If you want a career in show business, you've got to be where the action is. You have to live in New York or Los Angeles, maybe Chicago, but really New York or Los Angeles. And that seems obvious, 
But I realized that's true because when I did stand-up, I did really well in Vancouver. But it didn't make a dent in my bank account. It didn't, or it didn't bolster my bank account. And it didn't amplify me anywhere outside of Vancouver because I was restricted mm. by geography. So no matter how much I achieved there, it would only go so far. So I realized that to maximize success, you have to uh, uh, equate uh, uh, or bring geography into the equation. And that's easier said than done when you're a non-citizen of America. But in show business, the one variable you can't control is good luck. You need to have talent, you need to have a work ethic, and you need to have good luck. You can control those first two, but you can't control good luck. But you can amplify your chances of good luck by being where opportunities will arise. So if you're in Los Angeles, your chances of success are far better right. than if you're living in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, you know, no matter right. how talented you are, even with the Internet. Or even true. Vancouver, Washington. Or even Vancouver, Washington. <laughs> so Gary Owens inadvertently uh, uh, hipped me to that. And it, I know it seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, you should be in Hollywood. But I realized that. And so I did everything I could to finally get into the United States legally, which mm -hmm. I did with work papers and had a lot of people in my corner helping me. Um, but that was the best advice gotta, that I got. Yeah, it's got to make a huge difference having George Slaughter down the street rather than across the border. Yeah, when, when George Slaughter found out I lived in, in Vancouver, George Slaughter, the creator of Laugh-In, an old elder statesman of comedy who gave Lily Tomlin and Robin Williams and Lorne Michaels and Goldie Hawn and Roseanne Barr and Dana Carvey their very first jobs in show business, um, he called me on the phone because I'd written an article about Moms Mabley and he was producing this thing about Moms Mabley with Whoopi Goldberg. And he phoned me in Vancouver. Again, it was just an accidental thing, like the Steve Martin thing. I did not expect it. I didn't know him. He thought I was in Los Angeles or New York and he wanted to hire me to write for this Whoopi Goldberg project. And he goes, now where are you living? You're in LA right now? You're in New York? I said, no, I'm in uh, Canada. He goes, Canada? The fuck are you doing in Canada? I said, well, I'm Canadian. He goes, Jesus Christ. Well, we brought Lorne Michaels down here. I don't see why we can't bring down another fucking mountain, Mountie. Uh, so, yeah, again, he was right. You should be in Los Angeles or New York yeah. if you really want to uh, go as far as you can go, uh, potentially, in show business. And uh, But what's the first thing as you're on this book tour for the comedians and people come up to you after a book reading or an event and they go, I'm an aspiring writer or comedian. What's the first thing you tell them? I don't tell them uh, anything, uh, but really the key is just not to stop. Mm -hmm. Don't quit. And if you're good, then you'll succeed. And if you're bad, you might not. But even if you're bad and you keep doing it, you also might succeed. Well, Cliff Nashroff, thanks for not quitting before you finish The Comedians. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, thank you for not uh, quitting in the middle of this <laughs> podcast. Nope, never quit. Except now. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave. Logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening.
things first.